Welcome to a special episode of Making Sense, where Jeff Snyder and I, Mio Kalinowski, are joined today by Bilal Hafiz of MacroHive. Bilal, can you tell us a little bit about MacroHive and yourself? Yes, of course. Yes. So let me start with my background and then I'll talk a bit about MacroHive. So my background, I've always been in the research side, uh, researching financial markets. I started off at JP Morgan in the late 1990s in, in London in 97-98, where I was doing foreign exchange research. Then I moved to Deutsche Bank in 2002, again in London, where initially I ran FX research globally, which essentially entailed me trying to predict the US dollar which is, as you can imagine, quite a thankless task, but it did give me quite a, a nice uh, global perspective on, on the world. I also built trading models and, and such as well. Then after the global financial crisis, I moved to Asia for, for a number of years based in Singapore, where I ran Asia research for Deutsche Bank. Uh, then I moved back to London to with Deutsche Bank, where I ran cross-markets research. So I had obviously, as you can tell, various research roles. Then in 2016, I moved to Nomura, the Japanese bank, based in London, where I ran strategy research at, at Nomura for about three years. And then in 2019, I finally gave up on working for big banks and decided to strike out on my own, where I set up uh, MacroHive, which essentially is a research platform where we produce research for investors. We have a product for retail investors, which you can, which uh, people can go to macrohive.com, where we produce very high quality content, you know, the type of quality that we would have uh, had on the institutional side. And we provide that for retail investors. And we're focusing on markets that retail investors care about. So at the moment, uh, it's increasingly things like crypto, but also equities and, and bonds and so on. Then we also have a higher tier institutional quality product for hedge funds and asset managers as well. So we have two, two products, uh, depending on, on the audience. And we've been doing that for about two, two and a half years. You know, the team's grown, we've expanded our audience and so on. So it's, it's going well so far. And I'm, I'm really enjoying not having to work in a big company. In yeah, all, you're, you're working in all these money centers around the world. Yes. I imagine you're getting so many offers from central banks to help kind of guide and frame the creation, identification, distribution of money, credit and collateral. Uh, so we're very pleased to have you join us. Yeah, yeah, I like waiting lucky. for those those uh, those calls from the central bankers to to ask me to uh, help them on the monetary policy, but uh, they 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 tend to uh, not uh, give me those calls. I like Shocked. how you described it as you know doing dollar based research as a thankless job because it really is, isn't it? I mean, yes. <laughs> especially for, uh, to an American audience in particular, where you know most people don't give the dollar a second thought. Really, it's just sort of eh, the dollar is the dollar, and we don't really pay much attention to it. It's it's amazing how once you get into it and realize, you know, get yourself into that to to, to really doing the research and doing the thinking and, and going through all the stuff, you realize maybe there's something important here. This dollar stuff isn't just trivial trading characteristics. There's there's really there's really stuff we need to identify and uh, take more attention to. And I, yeah, Emil's right. We wonder. When are the central bankers going to wise up to it too, right? No, absolutely. And, and I think one of the, the nice things about looking at the dollar and, and FX markets is that it's the intersection of global markets. It's the largest market yeah. in the world. It intersects all the, all the global systems in the world or the financial systems for every region. And it gives you this global perspective, which I think often investors say in equities or bonds tend to forget that there's the rest of the world and there's all these interlinkages which are super important that influence all the underlying asset markets as well as currency markets and being in fx really gives you that perspective 
Yesterday, yeah, Jeff, I'm sorry, Jeff, yesterday, Jeff and I recorded a show where we went over the transcript from 2013, the FOMC transcript, and we settled on the idea that it's likely that they're going to hire a lexicographer to be the head of the <laughs> Federal Reserve. It's much more likely they'll hire a lexicographer, someone who has worked for Merriam-Webster or a psychologist. That is so much more likely than that they would reach out to you, uh, someone who's been in foreign exchange markets, uh, bond markets, bond traders, money market dealers. They'll never reach out to you. It's bananas. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, I absolutely agree. <laughs> Jeff, I interrupted you. What were you going to say? It was no, probably smarter and you know, wiser. Part of, the, part of the problem here is economics and orthodox, orthodox economics, which says that every national economy is essentially an island, right? It's the U.S. economy is a U.S. economy, and the Chinese economy is a Chinese economy. And in theory, they don't really, I mean, there's some trade back and forth, but the linkages are never, they're never viewed as crucial or vital. And as, you know, Bilal obviously knows working in all these places and coming at it from a global dollar perspective, that's just, that's just, that's in itself bonkers and wrong because we know that there's really a global system and that there really isn't, the U.S. isn't really an island, China isn't really an island. And what goes on in the U.S. or China or emerging markets, they have feedback mechanisms all throughout the global system that if you see something happening over here, even though maybe it doesn't seem like you should be paying attention to it, if it starts to move, you know, dollar especially, but certain markets, we really should pay attention to it, even though maybe it seems like some far-flung location that really shouldn't have any kind of direct relationship with our own understanding of how things are working. Well, let's, let's make this your interview submission, your portfolio. <laughs> We're going to submit this to the central banks. You don't need the money. Obviously, you're creating money out of thin air. You know how to do that. This is your public service to give back. And Ch China, Jeff just mentioned it. Let's talk about that because you wrote an article at MacroHive. This way, people will also get a sense of what they can get at MacroHive. You wrote an article a month or two ago. I guess I have the date here, September 22nd, 23rd. It was called China Crosses the three red lines into low growth reality. Tell us a little bit about this article, and then I'm sure that we will fill in a whole hour or more of discussing China. Yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, the, the three, the reference to the three red lines was that about a year or so ago, China talked about the three red lines um, about, which was in reference to the property sector in China, how they were going to sort of draw some red lines, which would make it harder for property developers in China to leverage up as much as they had been in the past. And my, my, my point here was that there's a broader red lines that have been crossed in China, which goes to three important sources of growth for China, which are being compromised right now. So one is the property sector, where China has, in essence, had this huge property boom over the last 20, 30 years. You know, the property sector in its various forms and the industries attached to the property sector makes up almost a quarter to a third of the overall economy in China. And everybody's got the finger in that pie. You know, local government authorities, they make money by uh, by uh, by sort of selling land uh, to developers and then getting the, the windfall profits, then individuals make money from flipping properties. So everybody kind of does does well in that in that whole game. But there is there's a leverage problem. You know, there's oversupply, too much leverage, just a classic housing bubble type dynamic. And the authorities now are really worried 
about how that's been unfolding. So they've been, you know, restricting leverage in that sector, and that's having a quite significant impact on the overall uh, growth uh, um, growth trajectory in China. But even more than that, it's also impacting the transmission mechanism of how the authorities there normally stimulate growth uh, in China. Like normally, when there's a growth slowdown, China just in injects some liquidity into the system. Then that uh, sort of feeds its way through to property companies. They build some more, you know, apartment blocks, and that's how they juice up growth. But now that uh, mechanism is broken because because of this deleveraging in in in, in the property sector. So that that's kind of one one aspect. And associated with that is this issue around credit creation in China, where before the global financial crisis, one unit of credit injected into the Chinese economy would generate, say, one unit of growth. Today. Um, more recently, it takes almost 12 units of credit to generate the same unit of growth. So the credit intensity has really exploded. Um, and that tells you that a lot of credit is just going into things that don't have any, uh, you know, residual value. So or they're just getting used to refinance old, old loans. Um, it's something similar to what happened in, in Japan in, in the 1990s, where they didn't deal with the bad debts. So all credit was just going to the refinancing bad debts rather than uh, new investments. Um, so, so that's one, one aspect, one of the red lines that has been crossed, which compromises Chinese growth. The second one is the attack of the Chinese on the private sector, especially tech companies. And what's interesting there is that the private sector in China is the most efficient sector in China, whether you look at productivity, credit use, capital use, whatever metric you look at, the private sector is, is, is very competitive, very vibrant, very efficient. It's the state sector and the state-linked sector that's, that's very cumbersome, bureaucratic, and inefficient. Yet the authorities are clamping down on the private sector. So they're clamping down on these big tech companies and other companies. Part of it you know, is with the cover of you know, security, data security, and so on, and breaking up monopolies. So there, there could be some social value in it all. But ultimately, what they're doing is they're constraining the ability of the private sector to perform well. And there's a geo... There's, a political economy to this all where uh, over the COVID period, uh, the authorities and, and authorities around the world have realized the power of tech companies and, and the authorities that are trying to contain that power. So that's another source of growth that's going away from, from China. And, and I would just add there that what the Chinese are trying to do is they're trying to say that, look, consumer facing tech, like social media platforms don't have much value but uh, chip manufacturing does. So we want to redirect resources toward chip manufacturing. But what we know in the case of the US and other, and other sectors around the world is that it's all a symbiotic interrelated system. You know, software creates hardware, hardware creates software. You, you know, if you cut off one, you have an impact on the other. As an example, uh, it's the, really the rise of uh, video gaming that has led to massive advances in graphic processors. You know, NVIDIA, you know, the US company's done super well in this, in this space. So you've had massive advances in graphic uh, processing uh, chips because of gaming. Um, and so while gaming may be viewed as a, a social ill, a social bad, it's led to massive technological advancements in hardware, so graphic processors, which in turn has, has led to advances in uh, crypto mining and other new kind of, uh, you know, new inventions and new creations. And you don't know where these things are going to end, end up. That's so, the fatal conceit, isn't it, Bilal? The, you know, the top-down central planning approach is that uh, we don't let the market set what's productive uses or anything else. We're going to decide what, what we think that, uh, we, how, to, how, how, how to allocate resources, for example. You know, when she came yeah. out, what was it, a month or two ago and said, yeah. 
Chinese kids are not going to play video games outside of a couple hours. We're yes. going to limit how much video gaming Chinese kids can actually play during the year because we want them studying and in the books and we're going to tell them what to study. And I think your point here is a great one, which is they're actually shooting themselves in the foot here because you don't know what innovation is going to come from. Is something is, you know, maybe as ridiculous and, and, and time wasting as video games sound. You're absolutely right. There's there's all sorts of good stuff that comes out of letting people be people. And that's always the fatal conceit with the uh, top down approaches. And of course, socialism is a prime example where we're going to allocate resources, including human capital resources. And that's, you know, to your point, long run, that might not be as productive as maybe the, the socialist drive is, is, is imagining, which is if we have kids study in the books, that's going to create this wonderful economic future when maybe it comes from video gaming, which creates, a, you know, an out of, yeah. you know, out of left field type of innovation that nobody can possibly plan in advance. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, that's the nature of markets as such. You just don't know where right. these inventions are, are going to come from. That's why we love them, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and uh, I'll just add China, you know, if you look at the period after Deng Xiaoping, you know, the 80s and 90s up until say the mid 2000s, China was decentralizing. They were devolving power to local regions and, and it was kind of opening up. Special in many economic ways. zones. I mean, the perfect and the you economic know, limited zones is very, yeah, with markets. Um, and now everything. it's uh, kind of reversing course. It's centralizing. Yeah. They're sort of clamping down on lots of sorts of things. So, you know, countries go through these different phases and you're seeing this also. This is not unique to China. You know, Western countries, you know, go through these phases as well, where you go from decentralization, localization to like centralization and, and you know, more bureaucracy at the top. You know, the pendulum kind of swings in, in both ways. So so it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of development that we're seeing there. But in in the end, I think it, this will have quite a profound impact on long-term, uh, you know, uh, the long-term growth potential of, of China. Yeah, and you're saying um, it's a negative impact, whereas it's a negative impact. Absolutely, right, the Communist Party is saying this is a positive thing. We're actually depending upon that, right? It's 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 amazing, kind of fatal conceit. Exactly, it's a positive and relative to the ugly future they're seeing, Jeff. I imagine yeah. they're not doing this because, oh, this is what we want to do, as you often write. They would be very happy to have plenty more growth, but they've observed that the growth is not coming, not coming anytime soon. And looking back at their own history, they see that perhaps centralization of all the regions of this disparate country that's so far flung, what they need to do is centralize control over the nation in as many different respects as possible to batten down the hatches because of the storm that's coming. So this is not the era for, well, for some countries, it would be decentralization, uh, republic democracies, but for authoritarian nations such as China, I would think that now is the time to centralize control so as to hope to make it through the crisis that lies ahead, not just for them, but for all of us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they 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 obviously are, you know, thinking about their own incentives. Um, and and just just to fi finish up on the three red lines, the third red line is COVID, where China was in some ways kind of held up as the example of how to deal with COVID, where essentially they they kind of shut down the borders of the country. Their numbers, case numbers, and death numbers look incredibly low for such a large large uh, country, you know, compared to any country, you know, they, they, they look really quite impressive. But what I find interesting with China is that over the last three, four months, they've had numerous outbreaks of COVID. And despite the fact that China has said that its vaccination rate is relatively high, similar to what you see in Europe or, or higher than the US, 
they're still going, they're still employing quite extreme lockdown measures in different cities that see outbreaks. So that tells me that either they don't have full faith in the vaccines that they're using, so they have to resort to an extreme measure for lockdown of a city, or they are genuinely trying to pursue a zero COVID strategy. Um, you know, which, you know, which, uh, you know, which is an objective, you know, they're, they're you know, of course, it's insane welcome. is what it is. It is zero yeah. COVID strategy is a completely insane. Let me, yeah, come I mean, to, let me come to Xi Jinping's defense again. Oh, no. Yes. You're real devil's advocate today. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> uh, just, just minutes, just hours before we went on the air. This is the 12th of November, 2021, I think. The Netherlands allow, announced that they too will pursue a bananas zero COVID strategy and they're going into a lockdown starting tomorrow uh, because, you know, somebody sneezed or something like that. So it's not just China. Uh, we can see this behavior from many political leaders that seems inexplicable. I'm in the Cayman Islands. We have one of the highest medication rates in, in the world as a proportion of the population. And uh, we too went into a sort of like a, a heightened state of government and intervention in businesses and freedom of movement. And, and, our, and our hospitalization count is, you know, just north of zero. And our death count is even, you know, two in two years. So it's not Xi Jinping, it's everybody that's bananas yeah, on this and topic. Yeah, a number of other countries in, in Asia in general, there's a number of other countries that are, are kind of leaning more towards, you know, zero COVID type approaches. But the, you know, the implication of this from an economic perspective, yeah. you know, wh whatever, whether it's right or not, you know, what we can say is there's a, there's a kind of a growth consequence, which is that, you know, a whole load of countries had the, the Delta wave over the summer period. And if you look at um, economic data series, like the services PMIs around the world, what you see is that China suffered a big dip in its data um, over the last three, four months because of the lockdowns. Whereas other countries that also had a, you know, a second, third wave didn't suffer that because they didn't lock down their economies. They just, you know, gritted their teeth and, and relied on their vaccination strategies. So if China does continue to pursue this and we know there will always be outbreaks, then China will, will sort of continuously have this stop, start, stop, start. And that will have more of a negative impact on growth. Uh, than other than other countries, um, and so despite China kind of being viewed as being very successful on the COVID side, from an economic perspective, it's taken an approach which has a negative impact on 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 on, on growth. Hey Bilal, you know, having worked in these places and coming from the background that you that you're in, do you get a sense that at least in the West, there's a misconception about what China's doing is Xi Jinping in particular. Because remember when he first showed up on the scene and he took over in 2012 from Hu Jintou when it was really supposed to be Li, Xi was sort of an upset and everybody said, well, this guy's a reformer. He's, he's, he's going to continue this, this uh, drift toward the neoliberalism of the West and you know, China's going to still pursue the Keynesian textbook and you know, growth is important to them. Do you get the sense that the that people around, especially the Western orthodoxy and establishment, for lack of a better term, still hold that kind of view that China is still pursuing, you know, the sort of Deng, Deng Xiaoping model or, or, you know, they're in denial about the oh. fact that Xi has turned out very differently. And, and then, of course, why he's turned out very differently. Do you, but in my, you know, from my limited sense of the rest of the world, it's like, Nobody can make sense of China when, you know, I think to you and me and Emil, it's like, wait a minute. No, this this makes perfect sense. This has kind of been 
Xi's roadmap ever since he came into power in 2012. He wasn't going to continue Deng's thing. He, his whole job and the reason why he's been elevated to status with, with Mao, equal with Mao, is that he's, he's got a radical transformation on his mind here. And it's not a neoliberal transformation. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, you know, and I think there has been more of a recognition of that shift, um, especially in the US, you, you, you see, you know, there's more of a bipartisan kind of view that's turning more hawkish towards China. Europe is a bit different, though. In Europe, people still, uh, yeah, at the highest levels tend to view China as if it hasn't really changed that much, that much under President Xi. So there, there's, there's kind of different views. Um, but th there is somewhat of a shift, I think. And I think the thing that people don't quite appreciate, I think, with China is that there's this idea in Western liberal thought that uh, there's a natural evolution in how societies right. develop. So you well, start, they call it the you know, bend of the arc of history or something yeah, like bend that. Of the arc of history yeah. and all of that type of stuff. So <laughs> yeah. there's a sort of a steady march towards right. liberal democracy, but that's not how the world works necessarily. <laughs> it's it's much more complicated than than that. Um, the other way of looking at China is that the Communist Party will use whatever means necessary to retain power. So if that means using market reforms to generate economic growth that increases their, uh, their support, they'll do that. If it means centralizing and clamping things down to deal with a new rival sources of power in the country, they'll do that as well. Um, so, so, you know, market reforms and those sorts of things are, are more a means to an end rather than ending themselves. It's amazing, isn't it? Socialism with Chinese characteristics can be whatever the Communist Party wants it to be at any given time. I mean, it's gone through so many evolutions. You know, so you just have this slogan, socialism with Chinese characteristics, that for 30 years meant a whole hell of a lot of capitalism. And now yeah. it's sort of more socialism again, except, you know, I think Xi Jinping is smart enough to realize that you can't just abruptly change capitalism. You see, you know, he's kind of letting the air out of the bubble slowly. And that's why, to your point, you know, not to go all conspiracy theory here, I wonder if that, you know, the Chinese are using these COVID emergencies as a method of letting a little bit more of the capitalist air out of the bubble. Maybe it's not pursuing a zero COVID strategy so much as it is, let's pursue an economic strategy under the cover of a COVID strategy where we can sort of, you know, we can use this as an excuse to clamp down on the property sector, for example, because that's as your charts, in, you know, in this, this article that, that we're talking about, some of the charts that you had included are just mind boggling and eye opening, particularly the one where you show Chinese property prices that are just going up and to the right, yeah. whereas everybody else this is way down here. So, yeah. I mean, the Chinese know they have a property problem. They know they have a growth problem and they know they're in the same situation that Japan was in, in the late 80s. And you have to wonder. If you're in Xi Jinping's shoes, for let me, to, I'll take the devil's advocate role from Emil here. If you're in Xi Jinping's shoes and you're faced with all of these problems at once, maybe you know COVID is sort of a you know not necessarily a gift, but you know it's it's an opportunity to advance your your political as well as economic agenda. No, I agree. I think I think actually one of the reasons why they're doing all of these things, you know, deleveraging the property sector and and almost like be willing to have lower growth is because COVID has allowed them to do that, you know, because borders are closed, you know, people are kind of paranoid about getting infected, you know, people are accepting much more of top down control. That's not just China, everywhere in the world, you know, Plus every, you, every kind of government blame, is using right? COVID as a pretext to do all sorts of things. Yeah, you know, you've got a scapegoat. You can say, hey, it's, you know, COVID. We yeah. couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, because one of the interesting things with China is that we, we know the growth numbers have been weakening over the last three, four, five months. And most 
you know, people have been saying, okay, they're, they're going to do some easing measures to, you know, juice things up and it just hasn't happened. So which tells you that the Chinese are quite serious in what they're doing. And what gives them the confidence, I think part of it is the fact that, you know, COVID gives them that pretext to be able to do these sorts of things. Um, you know, I think the other thing also is if you look at the labor market numbers uh, in China, they haven't shown a big deterioration. So even if growth is lower, as long as people are, you know, generally employed, then they yeah. can probably, you know, accept lower growth as well. It's a political consideration, not an economic one. This is not the first time they've tried, attempted to tamp down debt growth. They've just done it sector by sector, but because they always, always are searching for a political growth number at the end of the year that keeps enough people satisfied and the political consequences of slow growth at bay, they can't stop it. So yes, right now they're, they've drawn these three red lines across the property sector. That just means debt is going to pop up somewhere else. They're stuck in a catch-22 as long as they cannot accept lower levels of growth each year they're going to have this non-productive growth somewhere, whether it's in the property sector or the infrastructure sector or exports or somewhere. And well, we know where it's it won't be, right? Building, it won't building. be in video game technologies. <laughs> that's for <laughs> sure. It won't be in recreational activities. No, I, you know, that's a great, it's, it's really, and I think that's really, you know, what, what you, what you just said and what Bilal just said was that, you know, to me, it's still in the Western media and the Western mind is, the Chinese government is going to come riding to the world's rescue, right? Chinese growth is weakening, and that has all sorts of global implications. As we started talking about, you know, this Chinese stuff is not just about China. It's about the rest of the world, too. And the rest of the world really depends on marginal Chinese activity. And so there's this idea that, oh, you know, the global economy is starting to run into some uncertain times, and the Communist Party is going to come riding to the rescue of not just the Chinese system, but the whole world. They're going to reflate the reflation trade. And as Emil, as what you were just saying, is absolutely spot on. This is a political thing where the Chinese have said, we are not prioritizing growth because it's not growth, as Bilal's charts all show. You know, this, this, you know, debt for the sake of debt doesn't actually add anything productive to the long run trajectory. So the Chinese are not going to come running to the rescue. And that, I think, is the message, not just that the Chinese are sending, but that's really, you know, when you look at the bond market and things like that, why is there so much pessimism, low growth and inflation expectations transitioning to, I think, what is our next, uh, our next conversation and point of topics is, you know, there is no cavalry coming to rescue the global reflation trade. No, I agree. I agree. You know, and I think one of the interesting features about Chinese growth in particular is that unlike the period after the global financial crisis, where China went on this huge infrastructure building um, program, which, which did provide an additional engine to global growth in addition to the US, this time we don't have that. If you look at Chinese growth, most of the growth in China today is coming from exports. So China essentially is producing stuff to be exported to the rest of the world. You know, a big surge of exports have been in COVID-related equipment, and then the other big surge has been related to the huge. It's almost binge. like circular logic, right? It's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We get growth because of COVID, but we don't have growth because of COVID, and then you know, yeah, it, it, it exactly. All falls apart. Um, and then also the other sort of big source of exports has been to the U.S. in terms of the the massive goods consumption binge that the U.S. has engaged in for the past year, year, year and a half. But the domestic numbers in China, like retail sales, just the sort of domestic consumer oriented numbers, have been really quite weak in China. So, so China isn't 
so far hasn't been able to generate any you know domestically originating growth or demand for the rest of the world so it's currently it's not really an engine of global growth and so we're, we're we you know we, we don't have those like twin engines of, of global growth that we had after the global financial crisis that's interesting of it's in itself too because the point you just made is that you know in the 2009 2010 period the chinese did what they were taught to do which was use the keynesian playbook which is fiscal monetary stimulus of whatever kind and just keep the taps open for as long as necessary and that's i think part of their political transformation is they looked at the keynesian textbook they look at the results of the keynesian textbook and said we gotta throw this thing completely out the window because it's left us in a state like japan in 1989 which for a top heavy political structure is all sorts of dangerous yeah, and and you know they they tried to clamp down on the leverage in 2014-2015 and it ended in a in a big mess for them. They had a big slowdown. They tried to devalue the currency, stocks cr cr created, and then they then they you know then they kind of did a bit of a U-turn around that point. So they they realized the mistake quite soon, you know, 2014-15 and they tried to really, you know, re, you know, rewind everything. Um but it led to such a sharp slowdown that they they got spooked by that, and then they kind of went back to their old ways after that. But now COVID is giving them another another opportunity to really clean up uh, the house again. Jeff, you wanted to take the conversation to another topic. Which which where did you want to go? I think we have to talk about inflation because that's what everybody talks about, and I get the sense that's what everybody wants us to talk about and wants other people who come on the show to talk about because. There are so many misconceptions about it, beginning with the fact that I resolutely, you know, adamantly say this is not inflation. This is something else. And so let's get some other people's opinions about what's going on with consumer prices and the consumer price index, maybe why the CPI doesn't look anything like the bond market. What's really going on here, Bilal? Help us, help us, or you enlighten us about inflation or not inflation. <laughs> yeah, no, no, of course. Uh, happy, happy to do so. So, I mean, f first of all, you know, we, we, we had the most recent data out of the U.S. for October, which showed very high U.S. inflation, headline inflation above 6%. Corn inflation was very high as well. So all the inflation hawks are coming out to say that we're about to enter the 1970s or so. Um, my, my counter to that is my, my sense, and the bond market also agrees with this, and is that we are not really in a new in high inflation paradigm. So for me, what matters more is not so much whether we have you know, some period of time where headline CPI or core CPI you know, spikes higher, but rather, are we going to, in general, have a broad, prolonged period of high inflation where inflation averages, say, four, five, six percent, not just over three, four months, but over three, four, five years? And uh, for me, all the signs are that we're not going to, you know, enter that phase. Now, now for one thing, um, if you look at, I mean, this is going a bit you know, uh, outlandish now. But if you look at inflation data over the last 1,000 years, so the UK <laughs> Bank of England produces the some data. The man after goes, our heart. We love that kind of thing. That's, that's goes our back style. To like the, the, the 1200s. Yes. Um, <laughs> the inflation in, in general has, has oscillated around zero. Average or median inflation has been around like 0.5%. So you have periods of deflation, periods of inflation. And periods of inflation tend to be associated with wars you know, where often um, the sovereign tends to just debase their currency and, yep. and massively expand, or it tends to be associated with transitions in the monetary system. So for example, like in the transition of Bretton Woods, and, and as, as you guys like to talk about the offshore dollar markets where 
money creation went global and out of the control of authorities that suddenly had all of this money you know, chasing uh, you know, too few goods and you had this massive explosion in the 1970s. Now today, you just don't have those dynamics. You know, for one, if you look at, you know, people talk about printing money and so on, but if we look at the US to start with, and then I'll talk uh, about some of the other parts of the world, um, you see that uh, the Fed's balance sheets expanded massively. Then if you look at banks, because the transmission mechanism should be Fed's balance sheet expands, that money ends up somehow kind of going to commercial banks who then use the reserves or the, the extra money they're getting from the central bank to then create loans, which then goes into the real economy. And then you have more money in the overall system. If you look at bank balance sheets, though, what you find is that they've increased the balance sheets for sure since COVID, but there's been a massive increase in the holdings of securities, mainly treasuries. So that tells you that they're, they want to lend to the government. They've increased their holdings of cash, so they want to hold something kind of a safe asset, but their lending to the real economy hasn't increased. There was a brief spike around COVID itself when there was all these government guaranteed loans, but since then it's really been anemic. So, you know, for all the talk of printing of money, the average guy in the street can't really get a loan very easily for all of this talk. The people who can get a loan very easily are people who can access the capital markets or the financial system. Who so don't really essence, need it, right? I mean, that's, I mean, they don't Google, need it. No, they Google just use them for financial engineering. Yeah. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is all of this printing of money that's going on around the world, it stays in the financial system. There's sloshes around the financial system rather than spilling over to, to the real economy. So that's number one that, you know, the, the talk of printing of money doesn't actually translate to, you know, new increase in money supply to, to the real economy that could generate inflation. And then the other point I would make in the case of the US is that, you know, because of the, the nature of the fiscal uh, transfers that we had in the US, we had this massive uh, uh, consumption binge over the last 12 months. People got these checks, they ended up spending lots of money on goods in particular, because, because of the lockdowns, they couldn't uh, consume services. And the US in, in, this, in, in over the past year, year and a half, it's done as much consumption of goods as it did in the previous 10 years. <laughs> it's, it's the fastest, it's the most rapid uh, increase in consumer goods consumption in American history. Right. Hmm. So we've never seen such a sharp, you know, uh, uh, increase in demand for consumer goods at a time when, you know, the global supply system was stressed, you know, because, you know, people were in lockdown. And so it's not surprising that we've seen some inflationary pressures in the goods sector. And, if you look at the US CPI data, core goods is, is really at very high levels, you know, close to where we were in the early 1980s. But core services, which excludes obviously all the, all the good stuff, um, that's well within the range of where we've been for the last 10 or 15 years. It hasn't had this explosive spike higher. It's, it's hovering around two and a half percent. And then if yeah. you look at the rest, then if you look at the rest of the world, Chinese inflation you know, headline inflation is at one and a half percent. If you adjust for base effects, core inflation is around 0.8 percent. Your area core inflation adjusted for base effects is, is around one yeah. percent. Japan, it's around one percent. So suddenly if you look at other parts of the world, which didn't do the same type of fiscal transfer, um, you see there's almost no inflation. So if we are in this world of you know, somehow there's this global shock of COVID, then you should be seeing rampant inflation everywhere in the world, which we're, we're, which we're not. There's something very specific to the US that's going on. And that tells me that, you know, the, the numbers we're seeing at the moment are, you know, 
kind of where inflation is today, but it doesn't tell you much about where inflation will be over the next year or the next three years or the next five years. Because it's not inflation. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I, I always come back. To, it's yeah. Consumer prices have risen, as you just pointed out, before a very specific set of reasons that have nothing to do with money printing, which is real inflation. So, you know, we and, and, look, and I think the other thing I would also point out is that we've also had a massive energy shock as well. Yes. So oil prices, say, if you look at WTI, you know, it's gone up over 100 percent over the past 12 months. In, in October alone, uh, oil prices went up 10 percent. And so it's no surprise that inflation is surprising to the upside because no one expected oil to be going up as much as it has. You know, in September, it went up 10% as well. And even though, um, you know, you, you can kind of strip out energy from inflation, it still has an impact on goods prices. So if you look at core goods or core CPI, it has a very strong correlation with oil prices because oil ends up permeating, you know, all parts of the goods sector. And, and so in some ways, you know, the other way of looking at what we're seeing right now is an oil shock. You know, in 2007, 2008, we had an oil shock, which led to very headline inflation. Then inflation collapsed thereafter when oil prices started to fall, helped by the GFC crisis. In, in 1990, during the Gulf War, oil prices spiked, CPI shot up, and then we had a recession and things sort of eased up. In the 70s, we had numerous oil shocks. Um, and so in some ways, what we're seeing today is, is an oil price shock. Um, and so to have a view that inflation is going to stay high for the next year or two years, you would uh, you could then say, okay, we're going to get a repeat of the oil price move we've seen over the past 12 months, which is a 100% increase, which means that oil will have to go up 100% for the next 12 months, which takes us to $200 in oil. So if you try to kind of reconcile everything, in essence, if you really believe in the current regime of inflation, what you're really saying is that oil is going to go to 200. And, and so the, the way to play that is through commodity markets just by oil. It's not to play this through rates markets because what rates markets are telling you is that uh, if you have an oil shock, what that means is high near-term inflation, but then a long-term recession. That's what essentially, you know, how, how the rates market sort of views that, which means, and what the rates market is telling you right now, it's pricing high near-term inflation, low long-term inflation, and low long low long-term real rates. So low low growth in, in the long term. So this is all kind of consistent with kind of an oil shock, you know, type type sort of metric. Bilal, this is something that Emil and I were talking about just yesterday, which is why isn't either domestic or foreign supply of oil? Do you have any insight into why? oil producers are so reluctant to actually ramp up production. You look at, for example, in the United States, the industrial production numbers, oil and gas production in the US, according to the Federal Reserve's estimates, are something like 13% below where they were in uh, January of 2020. And there has been no determination or no determined move to bring domestic oil production back online, even as oil prices domestically, WTI, continues to go up and up and up into the 70s and now 80s. You know, do you have a sense? I mean, we all have our own theories, but, you know, I'm, wonder, I'm interested in what your take is on why oil producers seem to be so reluctant to break to embrace what seems to be, at least according to the, the mainstream narrative in, uh, you know, this inflationary oil prices are going to maybe go up to $200 a barrel. And this is going to be a problem forever forward. It doesn't seem like oil producers seem to be buying that whole thing or that whole that whole uh, story. No, no. I mean, I, I think there's a number of different reasons for that. You know, I think I think one one reason is I think that in general, there actually has been a lack of energy investment in, in the oil sector for the last four or five years, which um, 
in the US, in the US as well as the rest of the world, which in part is driven by the whole climate change ESG moves, where it's actually getting increasingly hard for oil producers to attract capital to do investments to to help you know un unlock more more production so that's one one kind of macro factor i think that's that's important here uh, another one is i think there are some COVID effects in terms of workers not you know being ready and able or willing to go back to work but then the other part you know and i think there's a parallel here with chip makers is that many oil producers are concerned that their end demand won't be there beyond the current uh, you know, uh, the current spike in oil. So if you, for example, if you look at, you know, multiples on oil companies or multiples on chip companies, if you look at, say, TSMC, the chip maker in Taiwan, massive chip shortage, it's trading at very low multiples. So that's telling you the market is telling you, uh, and they themselves are kind of indicating this, they, they have a very low confidence of what the, you know, equilibrium demand is for either chips and for, for energy. Uh, and for oil. And so I think there's this kind of hesitation. And this goes back to the point about, you know, people just are have a very low conviction level around where growth is going to end up. Um, and, uh, and so I think that's another factor that's influencing this. Lal, as we head towards the end of the show, we've already discussed China and inflation, two things that are top of mind for everyone. Now, what, what is another item that people maybe are not thinking about, but that you think in the in the future, not too far from today, will be focused on what what's on your radar screen as coming up next. Well, you know, there's a there's a few things, but I think the, the big one will be recession. You know, I think that you know, how dare year... you? Haven't you read the news? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you get? The memos from the government and the central bankers. Warren Buffett said it's red hot and he's the guru. Yeah, yeah. All right. I'm sorry uh, for know, interrupting, think, but go. Yeah, go yeah. No, I'm, uh, right, you know, recession. I hear you. The memos haven't arrived yet. You know, maybe it's, uh, you know, the postal workers aren't, aren't working, you know, because they, <laughs> they've uh, quit their jobs to do something else. Uh, but I think I think when whenever we've experienced such sharp increases in commodity prices, you know, typically you, you see a recession soon after. I also think central banks could end up hiking rates, you know, because of high current spot inflation. And so when they tighten policy, just like we saw <laughs> with the Fed in 2015, 2016, 2017, it ended up driving the economy down. Um, I think we could see, oh. so I think next year will be much more talk about recession. Uh, so I think that's one thing. That's one thing I'm kind of focusing on, um, and which partly explains and rates markets are kind of telling you that, you know, there's been a, when I speak to, you know, investors around the world, everyone's been puzzled as to why are real rates so low in the US or just nominal yields? Why are they so low? Um, and I think the market's telling you something that, you know, there's real concerns about growth here. So, so that's one thing, you know, I'm, I'm focused on. And then the other thing is, uh, you know, you know, one has to kind of look at crypto markets in some form or another. I mean, there's also wild things going on in that sector. But for me, the most interesting dimension of the whole crypto thing is in the whole area of um, uh, assigning property uh, rights or digital uh, property rights to the creators of assets um, in the digital space. And so while people try to lump technology companies all together, in many ways, if you push the whole crypto decentralization, you know, NFT thing to its limit, it basically the biggest losers from that are companies like Google and Facebook. You know, companies that are the aggregators and the platforms who aggregate everyone's information. Um, what crypto does is it, it actually attacks those those guys. So I think that's going to be a really interesting kind of uh, you know dynamic go, go, going forward. And I think that's something that uh, people haven't you know people kind of conflate 
everything together to say, okay, Google, Facebook, crypto, they're all in it together. But I think they're actually at the opposite ends of the spectrum here. And there's a real power play here between the two. It's amazing. I think some people are so afraid of de decentralization and democratization of something like that, when to me, that's utterly beautiful because it gives real power and real freedom to a people. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, it, that's to me, is, it's, it's also beautiful in a monetary context, but it's also a great potential in my mind for a lot of other things, you know, beyond just sp uh, specifically cryptocurrencies and things like that. So I think that's a really good point is that when you look at the digital space, you've got to separate out what's going on overall, which is, you know, basically like the dot-com bubble where people are seeing, you know, this, this disruptive technology that has absolute value. We just don't know what it is. We can't exactly, really yeah, tell what yeah. it is. It, it, it's a bit like the internet itself. I mean, yes. we had the dot-com crash, but we still use the internet today. I mean, it's, it's, it's transformative in, in that it, sense. So it, it's, it, it's something's going to happen. We aren't quite sure what it is. Right. Um, but the powerful thing about this new way is that it's decentralized. And the question is, will regulators and, you know, will the big companies try to prevent that decentralization from happening? Because well, they it, will it, try. They will definitely exactly. try. The so, question is whether they can succeed. And I don't yeah. think they can. I think yeah, it's, that, that's it's the thing. It's, yeah. it's very that's hard the, to with, right. with a decentralized, uh, you know, decentralized uh, ledger on the blockchain. You, you can't. This is the first time where no matter what the power dynamics are you, you can't you know there, there's a ledger that's decentralized so you, you can't actually take it down i think that's that's to me that's the story behind uh, uh, uh central bank digital currencies where they finally yeah. realized we should have strangled this thing in the crib 10 years ago now it's too late and now we have to pretend like we're actually doing the same things they are to try to just make people believe that we're involved in digital currencies as well because it's too far along and it's it's, it's already out there in the environment that's why i always use the analogy you know here in south florida the, uh, the pythons that have permeated the, the Everglades, once they got into that environment, as much as they were an invasive <laughs> species, it was the perfect environment for them. And they have absolutely flourished, even though the state of Florida, the, the wildlife people have made every effort to extinguish the python population, the population, it has only grown and gotten worse because it is absolutely the perfect climate for it. And I think that's really decentralization, yep. digital technology, all of that stuff. There's tremendous value there. We just we can't quite put our fingers on exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. So everybody it's just, just buys it's just anything. It's, it's a wild it's west everything. at the moment. And there's a lot of noise in, in yeah. that space. Yeah. Tons of noise. Bilal, how often do you post at Macro Hive? Where else can people find you? What sort of content? Tell everyone where they can go, when they can go, the who, what, when, where, why. Okay, of course. Yeah. So just if you just go to macrohive.com, you know, it's, it's easy to find or just Google Macrohive. You know, we produce content, me and the team every day. So every day there'll be new articles published. Nuts. I have my own podcast show as well. You know, it comes out every Friday. Um, Jeff uh, was kindly a guest as well. And we have a range of different guests, you know, people like Jeff, you know, uh, recently we had the, a senior person from the European Stability Mechanism. So we, we get the policymakers as well. You know, we have people in crypto, just a very diverse audience because the, the purpose, like yourself, Emil, is, you know, Kind of education and we're we're kind of open to wherever people are from whether they're from the establishment or not you know we just want to kind of get as many sort of smart people into the conversation so you you can see that's called macro hype conversations you can get the podcast on on wherever you get your podcast from so yeah just go to macrohype.com contents every day we cover loads of asset classes from crypto to bonds to equities economics um, and then there's a podcast as well Excellent. Excellent. So macrohive.com and that's where you'll be able to find yourself on Twitter as well. And the podcast that's all 
located yeah, there. You can find everyone. everything there. So on, on Twitter, Perfect. you know, just Macrohive and uh, just my name, Bilal Hafiz123, uh, actually. Bilal Hafiz123 on Twitter. So, but all the details are on the website as well. So you can find everything there. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Bilal. Jeff, do you have any final thoughts? No, just thank you for thank you for joining us, Bilal. We, we really appreciate it. And, and, and thank you for sharing your, your articles as well as your expertise. My pleasure. It's great. Great being on and keep up the good work, guys. Thanks. Thank you.